May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Like many people at St. Benedict's table, I came to Advent relatively late. Wasn't observed in the church tradition of my childhood. Yet because my parents sometimes bought us one of those calendars with a little door for each of the first 24 days of December, it was before you got the ones with chocolates in them, by the way. I had some vague sense that Advent was basically a countdown to Christmas. We even had a version of the calendar made of fabric, which had a little brass ring tied to each of the 24 days leading up to Christmas Eve. And for those days, my, my brother and I would see who could get up first and race downstairs and flip the ring for that day. Of course, ultimately, it didn't re- really matter who won that competition because another ring had been flipped and we were one day closer to the best day of the year. That month of December was so filled with anticipation. When can we put up the tree? When can we set up the creche? When can we start eating the Christmas cookies? How many more sleeps? I knew that my mom stored the wrapped presents in the big walk-in linen closet And I love to go into the closet and just look at them. And mostly I would just look. (laughs) Because if I examined one too closely, I might guess what it was. And I didn't want to ruin the surprise. So agonizing as it could be, I really just wanted to experience that deep, and delicious feeling of anticipation. During my second year of university, I started attending worship here in the All Saints congregation, and I began to discover Advent. Over the four Sundays prior to Christmas Eve, we gradually light the candles on the Advent wreath, which I took to be a grown-up version of flipping the rings on that fabric hanging in our front, front hall. On the fourth Sunday of the season, the creche appeared, yet the baby wasn't in the manger. And for some mystifying reason, the three magi didn't appear until January 6th. We sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, And come, thou long-expected Jesus. But we held back on the Christmas carols until the late-night liturgy on Christmas Eve. And in the same way that as a little boy I had delighted in anticipating the arrival of Christmas Eve, as a young adult I was wrapped up in this more solemn anticipation of the Christmas feast. What I couldn't make sense of was the content of the gospel readings for the season. As was the case with us here tonight, on the first Sunday of Advent, we read from one of Jesus' apocalyptic teachings with dire warnings of a coming crisis and a call to be alert, awake, and ready. Over the next few weeks of the season, 
things more or less backed their way towards Christmas. As we heard gospel accounts about John the Baptist and how he heralded the arrival of the adult Jesus. And then finally, on the fourth Sunday of the season, finally we got the story of the Annunciation. Now that seemed like the right preparation for Christmas. Yet the candles on the wreath, the crash with its empty manger, the singing of the carols of expectation were really quite enough. I was more or less hardwired to thrill in the sense of anticipation. This season of Advent was tailored for me. Yet the more I've lived with Advent, the more I came to realize that although it does bear a significant connection to Christmas, it's not merely an adult version of my how many sleeps till Christmas countdown. In fact, preparing us to celebrate the great feast of the Incarnation is only its secondary purpose. Primarily, Advent is a season that calls us into readiness for Christ's return, for the world's final Advent, when all of time and all of history will be drawn to their culmination. So the words and phrases which appear in the opening week or two of this season, be alert, awake, watch, prepare, are anything but reminders to get our Christmas shopping done or the baking underway. They call us into a posture of fundamental openness to what God is ever and always about to do in us and in our world. And so, we heard tonight these words from the Gospel according to Luke, in which Jesus called his followers to, quote, "...be on guard, so that the day does not catch you unexpectedly." like a trap, and be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The crisis is on the horizon, he seemed to be saying to them, and there's an urgent need to be awake and to be ready for it. The reality is that within just a few decades the crisis hit them like a ton of bricks. The Roman army rolled in and destroyed the temple, flattened the city of Jerusalem. Then, under emperors like Nero and Domitian, Christians were subjected to unimaginable persecutions. Believers recalled Jesus' words about signs in the sun, the moon, the stars— and on the earth, distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of seas and the waves. And if you were a Christ follower in those days, in the days of Nero, these images seemed a pretty accurate, albeit symbolic, description of your reality. But still, there seem to be two levels at which Jesus is teaching in these passages— One pointing to that imminent and immediate crisis, the one that they experienced in the 60s and 70s and 80s A.D., and the other to the final crisis and to the final promise. 
There's a strong sense here that before the kind of world of which the prophet Isaiah sings, a world in which nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord, when swords will be beaten into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, before that can come to be, things are going to reach a kind of a boiling point in which it will appear that all will have been lost. Yet, Jesus says, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. His early followers experienced the crisis and the violent persecutions, but not quite this final promised redemption and fulfillment and completion of all things. Truthfully, you see, we can't say that swords have been hammered into plowshares, or at least not for long. We can't say that the lamb and the lion have lain down together. It would be lovely to read the prophet Isaiah's words on Christmas Eve, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, that those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Yet for all of its glory, Christmas is but the first chapter in a much longer story, a story that remains as of yet unfinished. Advent is the season in which we are called to be honest about the brokenness of the world, its needs, its hungers, its lostness, even its propensity to collapse into chaotic violence, as is happening right now in Syria. But Advent is also the season in which we are called into a posture of readiness and preparation for the return of Christ, of openness and trustfulness that there is a horizon to which all of time and all of history and all of creation are being drawn. For a Christian in somewhere like Iran or Burma today, or in Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union 60 years ago, or in the Japan of the shoguns four centuries ago, Jesus' words about impending crisis and persecutions, and his words about return, redemption, fulfillment, would have rung with a penetrating immediacy that most of us will just never know. Yet, the promise is held out to us, too. God is not yet finished with our world. God is not yet finished with us, not as individuals, nor as a people together. On this first Sunday of Advent, I invite you into a posture of wakefulness, alertness, and openness to what God is ever and always about to do. Behold, I am making all things new. Even so, Lord Jesus, come and complete us. Amen.